You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Bloomberg Intelligence Talking Transports podcast. I'm your host, Lee Glasgow, Senior Freight Transportation Logistics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have Admit Matt Rotra to... Uh, to the podcast. He is the managing director in charge of transportation and shipping research at Deutsche Bank. His coverage includes trucking, logistics, brokers, air freight, rails, and all maritime shipping verticals. Ahmed achieved rank positions in industrial investors, or II, survey in more than one category in the last seven years, most recently this past year in 2023, achieving the number two position in shipping and the number three position in air freight and surface transportation. He was previously recognized by Thomson Reuters as the number one stock picker in air freight and logistics sector. Amit has over uh, 20 years of experience covering the industrial sector from both the sell and buy side perspectives, including global autos and auto parts, aerospace and defense, capital goods, transportation and shipping. Amit, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lee. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, great, to, it's great to talk to you. Uh, you know, I've always... Uh, been on the lookout uh, to, for your calls. You've had some uh, great calls over the years. Uh, one of them is in in the in LTL space. Uh, Saya, uh, that's that's a stock that's up uh, pretty considerably. I think in the last five years, it's up over 700% versus uh, the S&P, which is up around 85%. Why has that been one of your uh, your favorite names? Well, well, Saya, you're right. I mean, it's up over 700% over the last five years. Not only has it outperformed the S&P, it's outperformed Apple and Microsoft and Amazon. And so whoever said transportation and trucking can't be sexy, uh, take a look at Saya's stock over the last five years. Um, you know, very simply, um, uh, most LTL companies that are non-unionized have an opportunity to be significantly more profitable over time. And ODFL has kind of trailblazed that path and is kind of the North Star of what is possible when execution and service and price discipline um, uh, all converge to create this uh, tremendous value. And, 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 and so Saya is really on that path. And so what I like to continuously say is Saya is when the opportunity meets the execution or where the execution meets the opportunity. And so, you know, we as, as, as fin financial analysts it's very easy to put some numbers down on spreadsheets and get to some pie in the sky, blue sky scenario, but it's the management team that has to uh, deliver and execute year in, year out, decade after decade. And we think that's exactly what Saya's management team is doing. And so, um, you know, what's really interesting is that Saya is up 700% over the last five years or over 700%, like I said, Lee, but we just published a, a report um, four or five days ago basically saying that Saya shares can double from here, uh, meaning over $1,000 per share by the end of 2026. And just to contextualize that, what's behind that, ultimately today, Saya only generates $60 of profit per shipment. 
uh, over the next, you know, uh, compare that to ODFL, ODFL generates about $140 of profit per shipment. So when you close that gap, um, we think that's what's driving the tremendous opportunity in SIA and why we recommend people put new money to work in the name today, despite the massive run that the company's had. But the bottom line is, is that, um, you know, it's really about when the execution meets the opportunity. And I think that's where, that's where SIA is and, and has been for the last few years and will continue to be. Right. And, and, and Amit, just for our listeners out there, ODFL is Old Dominion uh, Freight Lines. That's a, another publicly traded company. Uh, do you have buys on both names? No. no. So we have a, we have a buy rating on, on SIA. We, we had a buy rating on Old Dominion for most of last year. Uh, we downgraded Old Dominion from buy to hold uh, back at the end of November, right after Thanksgiving. Uh, one, because the stock had already rallied so hard. And so it was just really hard for us to uh, justify a buy rating based on you know, what we thought earnings would look like over the next couple of years based on what, um, you know, the multiple should be at that point, what you capitalize those earnings at. And so, yeah, we have a we have a buy rating on side, but a hold rating on old Dominion. Right. And, and I think it's pretty interesting if we stay on the subject of the less than truckload uh, market or the LTL market. You know, what's been really interesting since uh, the summer, this past summer, is that one of the largest uh, LTL carriers, Yellow, went out of business. Can, can you kind of talk about why that is kind of driving some of your maybe your bullish comments on Sia? Well, so 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 what Yellow Corporation was the third largest LTL company in the country. Um, it has a a company that has a many many decades long experience. In fact, Sia used to be a subsidiary of Yellow and and came out of Yellow, uh, you know, twenty years ago. Some people forget that, but it's it's kind of a, an amazing right. um, history. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, Yellow has been kind of in the market with one hand tied behind its back for the last 15 years after really the price war of 2009 and 2010. And so, um, you know, basically, ultimately, this this freight recession we've been in over the last couple of years um, caused the company's earnings and shipments to decline. And, and ultimately, when co- combined with the union negotiation, was too difficult to, to bear. So Yellow went bankrupt. Um, it, it, its assets were liquidated or are in the process of being liquidated. Um, this is uh, Yellow did about 50,000 shipments per day. So think of it as, you know, um, almost two SIAs going away, uh, an ODFL going away, an XPL going away. It's kind of that similar scale and size in terms of shipment levels. So those shipments had to find new homes, had to find um, uh, new carriers. And that was highly disruptive, particularly during the third quarter. And so that gave uh, carriers pricing opportunities. It gave other carriers market share opportunities, which ultimately will hopefully lead to pricing opportunities. And so, yeah, it was a very disruptive environment. I think the dust, dust has kind of settled now. We're still in a weak right. freight environment generally. So, um, but, but, but broadly speaking, it gave the LTL companies essentially a free freight recession. What I mean by that is, is that you didn't typically see the trough from the peak, you saw peaks going to new peaks because of the pricing opportunities. And that really bodes well for outlook for all LTL companies over the next couple of years. I mean, we talk about if there is a broad freight recovery, at some point there inevitably will be. There could, we could debate about when that happens or, or there's uncertainty around that, but there will be one. And when that happens, you know, these LTL companies, their earnings power are going to increase dramatically, which is why they trade at such nosebleed valuations today. The market is efficient uh, over time. And, and it's really signaling what these companies' earnings capacity could be like uh, over the next two, three years under a scenario of a broader freight recovery. 
Right, and, and a couple of those uh, LTL carriers you mentioned, they announced uh, you know contract renewals were up uh, high single digits uh, in the quarter. So that's uh, you know we were talking about pricing power. It's something very interesting because you know when you look at the truckload market, they they don't have any pricing power. But you know one of the interesting things I think about SIA, you know it's it's as you kind of alluded to, it's a growth story still because they did not necessarily have a national footprint. And, you know, Yellow is kind of, the bankruptcy of Yellow is providing them an opportunity to kind of accelerate um, their growth story to, to getting a, a national footprint. Do, do you have any thoughts on when do you think they're going to get there? Well, I mean, they, they already are there right now. I mean, they've got a little under 200 terminals across the country. I would say that um, having a national network and having an optimal national network are two different things. And so I, I think what they're trying right. to do to your point, Lee, is they, they have a national network and that was a lot of their Northeast expansion and their organic growth. And now they're in the luxurious position to say, okay, we have a national network, but how do we optimize that? How do we fill in the holes that we have um, to basically optimize where we are from a, from a network density perspective, from a pricing perspective? And let me be, be very clear about this. So, so we talk about pricing in the LTL industry. You know, we have data, over 10 years of data that tells me that customers of LTL carriers care way more about service than they do about price. I mean, you know, service might be number one, price is like number 15 in, on the list of rankings. And, and while it's important to have competitive price, at the end of the day, you can really differentiate yourself by having good service. So let me just say that SIA has been investing in their service for the last 10 years. Um, yes, the yellow bankruptcy allowed it to accelerate its performance, but like it, anything in life, you know, um, uh, what happens is, is when opportunity meets timing or luck, and that's when magic happens. And so I think I think Sia was at the right place at the right time. Um, it, it it had it was it was done a lot of the heavy lifting, a lot of the hard work, and then Yellow happened to come along. But I think Sia would be on the current path it's on even without Yellow. I don't. I, I think Yellow just accelerated that to your exact point, Lee. Right, right, and they're going to have to like outsource some of the pickup. You know, that before they may might have outsourced pickup and delivery in certain locations, and this is going to allow that them to bring kind of more. Yeah, of that or hand over, or hand over. You know, do cartage or hand over in regions that they don't. They, they, you know, one thing when you do when you have a national account and you don't have a fully densified national network, you have to take pricing discounts because you have to hand off that freight to a, a, a competitor or, 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 you know, in a certain region where you don't have that great coverage. And that's what they can address. And then the other thing is, is that, you know, people don't realize is that when you have claims ratio that's very, very low, you can charge insurance on your, on your, on your pallets. And, and, and that insurance, if you have very low claims ratio, drops directly to the bottom line, that insurance premium. So there's a lot of benefits, debt network-centric financial benefits that come from a, a, a robust national network. But with that also comes risk. You can't go from... 200 to 260 terminals without some level of execution rescue. You restructure the line hall network. You got to think about the people you bring on and the culture of service that, that those people, new people bring to the, to the business. So this is not easy by any means. It's incredibly hard. I like to say that, you know, as somebody that, that lives and breathes the LTL network, at least analytically, I've never seen a more operating intensive business, more complicated business when you're operating inside of it. It's very easy for all of us to look at weight per shipment and yield and length of haul and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, this is an incredibly hard thing to do. And so that's why I think Saya, the fact that they've been able to grow their business, you know, grow their shipment count and raise prices and raise margins 
that through those three things together are very, very difficult to do. And they're the only company in LTL that's actually been able to meaningfully, you know, take market share and actually improve their margins. And that's why we're so bullish on the stock. Right. And, and just uh, to plug the podcast, so uh, you, you, if for those listening today, you could go back and uh, listen to a conversation we had with the CEO of Saya, uh, Fritz Holds uh, Graph, uh, which is available uh, on all the podcast channels that are out there. Um, so just switching gears a, a little bit. So, you know, we, we've talked about Zaya, you know, it's had some great growth. Uh, its stock has super uh, outperformed the, the broader markets in some areas that most people considered are, are high growth areas. So, you know, I know part of your job is to find, you know, what the next SIA is uh, for investors that, uh, um, you know, for your Deutsche Bank investors, uh, customers. So can you, where is the next growth area um, that you're looking for? What is the next name that you think has a lot of opportunity for significant upside? Yeah, sure. So, so, so listen, I think there's a couple ways in which you can look at this industry, the transportation. One is through a very cyclical transactional lens, whereas the freight market, if it improves, you know, uh, blah, 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 like at the end of the day, you know, we think this is going to be a cycle beneficiary. But what's What's so interesting right. to me and, and my team and what we love to do is like, where are the compounders going to be? Like, where is there an opportunity for earnings power to double or triple or quadruple? And, 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 and there's not a lot of that because it's, it's a mature industry. It's a trillion dollar industry in terms of revenue. Um, and, and a lot of these companies are over 100 years old. And so it's not really that simple to, to, to figure, figure that out. And, and so I wouldn't, it's really hard to find the next SIA because SIA has been so, such a monster, if I could put it that way. Uh, but there are companies that we mm -hmm. think can be secular winners, you know, cyclical debate turning into secular uh, conversations. And so one company is J.B. Hunt. And listen, we, we haven't been positive on J.B. Hunt for a long time. You know, we, there was a time that we had a celebrating on J.B. Hunt. Um, and, and as we have gotten smarter about the opportunity that J.B. Hunt um, provides and, and the value added uh, competitive advantage it has, we've gotten smarter. And as a result, we've gotten more bullish on the company. And so um, JB Hunt today moves about 2 million intermodal loads per year. We think that over the next two, three, four years, that could be 3 million intermodal loads a year. So a 50% increase in the loads. And, and, and we think the company has a huge competitive advantage in terms of the asset basis has the relationship with BNSF that it has, um, the variable cost structure that it has. So we are really, really excited about JB Hunt in terms of what the next two to three year opportunity could be. And when you compare JB Hunt to its competitors in terms of Hub Group or Schneider or Swift Intermodal, um, you see that they've massively outperformed in terms of, of resiliency of profits. And we think that reflects their, 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 their variability in their purchase transportation as it relates to their evergreen contract with BNSF. So JB Hunt, May not be the next SIA, <laughs> hard to see that stock go up 700% over the next five years, but it could certainly be SIA's little brother in terms of the outperformance that it could generate over the next <laughs> two years. The other company, and this is a little bit controversial, is UPS. So UPS, um, um, we believe the labor deal that they signed in the middle of last year will be a long-term positive for the company. Now, I have been bullish on, on UPS for the last 18 months. And last year it was a disaster. So I am not, you know, I'm not, I have a lot of egg on my face with respect to UPS and, and recommending that company. But the intrinsic drivers for why we are positive on UPS are completely intact. 
meaning that the cost curve massively comes down starting in the middle of this year and stays that that low cost inflation stays with the company for the next several years, really till the end of 2026. So UPS is a company where, you know, exactly what happened last year, volumes bad, costs bad. So both sides of the PL were bad and, and that had a compounding effect on the profits of the company. We think that the next three or four years can be a mirror image of that because what happens is you have some cyclical recovery in volumes and then you have this cost inflation that comes back down and moderates to basically next to nothing. And so um, JB Hunt and UPS are two companies that we think are really interesting debates outside of, hey, what do you want to buy if the cycle moves up in the next couple of months? Right. And, and, and I think the UPS is pretty interesting on the earnings call. Uh, you know, I know you, you were on it and you, um, you win Carol Tomei and she's a been CEO for a couple of years now. She's really taken a hard look at some of the businesses that UPS is in. She decided that, you know, the less than truckload business uh, was not a good fit for them. And, you know, when they divested that and sold that to TFI, uh, I think a lot of people were surprised when they saw the financials of, of how, how poorly run it was. Uh, and now there's talk of a strategic review for the brokerage business. Do you have an opinion about like, is that a net positive if they get rid of it? Uh, do you, do you, do you think it's it's a good business to have? Because obviously they lean on that business during peak season when they're looking for line hole moves. So it, it, they do get some benefit from having that in-house. I just wonder what your thoughts well, I, are on that. I think first and foremost, you know, UPS is a partial company uh, and an airlift company. That's the vast majority of their of their profit right. pool. And so um, do I like that they sold the LTL business, you know, a year and a half before the biggest uh, one of the biggest uh, bull runs in LTL, you know, but, but obviously we don't have a time machine. We don't have a crystal ball. So no, I, I don't think so. I mean, they sold it, I think to TFI for 800 million bucks. And obviously TFI now is trying to turn around the business. And I agree with you. What's amazing when you talk to TFI, we cover TFI. When you talk to TFI, it's pretty incredible how, um, how much uh, wood to chop there is in terms of improving that business. And, and I think that in LTL land, mm -hmm. you never hear most LTL, pretty much all LTL companies, except for what I can think of one, never talks about free cash flow because a lot of that operating cash flow has to be reinvested to uh, buy new equipment, buy, add new terminals, and add, which is basically proxies for service. And so at the end of the day, it seems like UPS um, wasn't focused on the LTL business. And, and so as a result, there was just too much capital and lift requirement, uh, and that would be a distraction away from the parcel business. So I think strategically it made sense. Timing was tough, but of course, at that time, it would be difficult. Right. I would say Coyote is similar. You know, Coyote is not a core business. I would say the, the two core businesses, obviously, or three core businesses of UPS is the partial business, like I said, the air freight business, the extra, uh, international express business, and then obviously healthcare. You know, people don't, don't really realize this, but U, UPS has a $10 billion healthcare business, healthcare logistics business. So I, th right. I, think, I think this is all about Carol's strategy of how do we focus the business on what really matters for the core operations? And, and yeah, I don't love, you know, selling Coyote when, when the, 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 we've seen the brokerage results. They're, they're very difficult. It's structurally the most difficult time. Or I shouldn't say structurally, cyclically the most difficult time is, is, is tough timing. But I think it shows her her, uh, you know, willingness to basically not be distracted by the cyclicality, just focus on what matters. And, and listen, Carol has had a tough run over the last couple of years. And, and so I, I have a t tremendous amount of respect for her, obviously, uh, but it's been tough for UPS over the last uh, one to, you know, 18 months or so. I'm hoping that 
um, the company gets its mojo back a little bit because uh, cyclically things get better and hopefully the cost inflation gets digested. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I hope that answers your question, Lee. I don't love the timing of it, but I totally understand yeah. it from what matters and what's core to the business. Sure. And just uh, for the listeners out there, so healthcare logistics is a good business to be in because it tends to have higher margins than regular logistics because of, you know, a lot of it has to be temperature controlled. There's a lot of security involved. So there's a lot of value add that a logistics provider is doing uh, for uh, the shipper. So that's a, it's a great business. And that's a business, uh, one of the reasons why UPS is so focused on that business. Uh, and then just going back, you know, some of your comments about the, the less than truckload market, the LTL market, uh, about how asset intensive it is, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's so hard for new entrants to get into the market. You know, if we look at the truckload market, there's really low barriers to entry. Anyone can really become a truckload carrier. You just need a CDL, a couple thousand dollars in your pocket, and you're good to go with all the uh, the apps that you can have at your fingertips to find loads. Um, so it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting, much more consolidated market, the LTO market, where the top 10 have, you know, I don't know what the number is now, then a yellow is gone, but 65 to 72% of the market. So uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's a much more consolidated market and therefore better pricing. Yeah, Lee, that's a that's a great that's a great point. And I, you know, I should have mentioned that. You're absolutely right. Like if 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 you and I wanted to start a truckload business, we need a check for five thousand dollars and tomorrow we're in the in the in the market. And we're no different than ninety-five percent of the other players in the market. Now, there's four million tractor trailers, fifty-three foot trailer tractor trailers on the road, and ninety-five percent of them are in the hands of people with fewer than four four mm-hmm. four um, units uh, versus the LTL industry. To your point, if you and I wanted to open up an LTL company, we need about you know five to ten billion dollars of capital before the first dollar of revenue comes in. So there is a if you you have to build it before anything comes. It's very very difficult. And and, and the, the barriers to entry. I think your point. I should have mentioned that right up front. But that is exactly why LTL has created the value it's created. Right. The and the good news is if we want to start an LTL market, I did really good on my uh, Super Bowl pool. So maybe maybe we can start one. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, you talked about, you know, J.B. Hunt. And, and for those that don't know, you know, exactly what J.B. Hunt do, uh, just FYI, it's ticker uh, JBHT. Um, you know, they have multiple businesses. Not only are they an intermodal provider, they have a, a brokerage business, a dedicated business, a final mile business. Uh, and a truckload business. So, you know, they are a, a truly diversified uh, transportation provider. Um, you know, what, what another company that's, that's becoming more and more diversified is uh, Knight Swift. Do you, do you have an opinion one way or the other on, on Knight, on the stock, uh, KNX? Of, of course, yeah. I mean, my job is to have opinions, <laughs> so, so <laughs> I absolutely have an opinion on Knight. You know, well, well Knight, Knight's a, a great, uh, it's hard to say, like, I believe that Kevin Knight and Dave Jackson and Adam Miller, you know, the, the chairman, CEO and CFO of Knight, respectively, um, all, all have a really great framework when they allocate capital. And that's really, really important, right? When you think about returns on invested capital, ultimately, that's where multiples and valuation and equity values really reflect ultimately the inputs from a return on invested capital perspective. So I believe that Knight management team is one of the best at that. Um, but, but the problem is, you know, you can have the best house in the world, but if that house is, is located in a very undesirable neighborhood from a cyclicality, from a barriers to entry perspective, then it's very, very difficult to, to create, uh, to, to raise the value of that house, right? And, and so I think what they've been trying to do is, you know, step into this multimodal kind of, 
environment where less revenue, less profits are coming from the most cyclically um, uh, cyclical of areas, uh, which is truckload, but they're not there yet. You know, there's a lot more uh, to go to be able to say that, you know, this is the company that should reflect that, that, that strategic direction. And, and I'll give you a perfect example. You know, if you think about trough to trough, so the last trough in the freight market was 2019. The current trough hopefully was 2023. We'll see. Um, but if you look at 2019 to 2023, Saya's earnings trough on trough, trough to trough was up to over 200%. Old Dominions was up over 100%. J.B. Hunt's was up over 40%. So these are companies that are creating value cycle over cycle. Knights were down. Knights earnings right. were down. EPS was down. And so I think, I think that, you know, to the extent that they tip their toes in LTL, it's very hard to build an LTL business. And so I, I would have said two, three years ago, whenever they first bought uh, AAA Cooper, I think if you would ask them where they would be now, they probably would have felt that they would have gotten more done, is my judgment. Um, and, but it's really hard. It's, it's really hard to find people to sell to you. And, 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 and I think, I think that, you know, night is a great, um, um, place to sell into because they'll make sure the legacy of that business continues like MME or AAA, for example, that's the same people that run it, et cetera, et cetera. And they put Reed Ross on the board, who was the head of, uh, act. But yeah, I mean, I, I think they just need a lot more to go. Now we have had a vicious truckload cycle. I mean, vicious. And so I think, I think that, that, that volatility or that bust that's happened over the last year has basically overwhelmed any, any, any improvement they've seen in diversification of their profit pools. And so I think there's more, more to do there. Um, and obviously with U.S. Express, even though that's a great acquisition and Knight had to do that acquisition, you know, Knight could not have not passed on that in my judgment. Uh, you know, it just makes it even harder than to diversify right. away from cost. And then also like, you know, the less diversified you are as a truckload carrier, the more of just a trading vehicle your stock becomes. Do you look at it that way? Were you just trading around the cycle versus like the buy and hold and keeping it forever? For, first and foremost, I think that, you know, um, uh, whether, you know, you have a low market cap or a high market cap or invest, you know, you, you attract a certain type of investor versus another, that all stuff is like on the margin noise, in my opinion. It's really about, what type of intrinsic value are you creating cycle over cycle? And so, like I said, you know, Knight's earnings EPS was down from 2019 to 2023. Sayas were up over 200%, which is why when you see the holder list for Saya, it's dominated by very large, long-only investors. And, and for Knight, it's, the, it's not that way. And so I think, I think um, you know, that, that could be um, achieved through, I would say, compounding earnings. And, and I think Knight, Knight has a full you know, we'll get there. I believe Knight will get there. Um, and, 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 you know, this is not a management team that lacks ambition. The CEO and CFO are very young. They want, they want to leave their mark on the industry and the company. And so I wholeheartedly believe they're going to get there. We're just not at the place yet where the market's willing to give them credit for what they've done so far, especially because of the volatility of the truckload market. Right. It's, it's hard to bet against uh, Knight's management team, uh, the success that they've had uh, integrating Swift. Uh, it looks like they're, you know, in early innings of success with uh, U.S. Express. Um, you know, they just have a, a super track record of, of just turning around poorly managed businesses. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's why I said they had to buy U.S. US Express. I mean, these, these types of assets don't come along, you know, they're, they're tightly controlled, they're family owned. And when you get something of this scale, you kind of have to do it. 
and I get it because because what 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 the management teams are really focused on is how much return they're getting on the capital that they're employing. And the stock market and the investors are going to do whatever it's going to do, but we have to focus on the returns on the capital that we employ. And the US Express opportunity was so meaningful and at such scale that you couldn't and then they don't come along very often that it was really something that they had to do in my opinion and 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 you're right i think they've done a tremendous job i mean i believe us express is profitable um uh, at an right. operating profit level today um and and so they're on their way um and i believe that Knight's uh, stock has bottomed here. I have a buy rating on Knight, Knight stock in the low to mid 50s. Um, you know, I believe that if we get any any even inkling of a freight recovery, whether it comes in March or April or May, when the seasonally stronger period, you know, Knight's going to have a six handle on its stock. But but I want to be very clear: this is a freight momentum stock at the moment. You know, it's a freight momentum stock, and even railroads probably are freight momentum stock. Uh, it is not a compounder yet. I think there's hope that they may be able to get there, but maybe one or two deals away from it. Right. Well, we were talking about U.S. Express and you know, before Knight um, bought them, their kind of operations and business was somewhat of a train wreck and, and kind of on that same theme. Can we talk about uh, Norfolk Southern? Um, that's probably a poorly worded pun, but, uh, you know, ticker NSC, uh, they've had a, a lot of struggles, uh, you know, following a, uh, you know, a derailment. Uh, in uh, in Pennsylvania or oh, was it uh, Ohio uh, where they had the uh, derailment? Yep, um, and you know they've been kind of fighting against that, and now they've had some uh, you know rumors in the Wall Street Journal about some activism uh, activity. What are your thoughts on Norfolk Southern? So let's just talk about the facts, and then I can talk about sure. you know what I think. But the facts are that you know there you know if you look at the most recent results on the fourth quarter. Um, the, the company that had the best margin was Canadian Pacific, and the company that had the worst margin was Norfolk Southern. And the gap that separated those two was 1,000 basis points, or 10 percentage points. Uh, so kind of a, high, a low 30s versus a low 40s operating margin. That is as wide as a, as a gap that's existed in as long as I can remember. You have to go back several years to see a gap that wide. And so um, CP should have higher margins than Norfolk Southern. They shouldn't have a thousand basis right. points higher margins. And if you look at if you look at CSX, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's about a 500 basis point margin gap. And if you think about Norfolk Southern versus CSX, there's a little bit of mixed difference in terms of intermodal, but essentially they're very similar companies and operate sure. in similar geographies. And so I would expect the 500 basis points of, of difference between Norfolk and CSX. To, to be to be to be notable and and for people to to talk about that and criticize that and you know we, just to give people a sense 500 basis points on a 12 billion dollar revenue base is 600 million dollars of profits you capitalize that at you know um, you know th that's over 10 billion of equity value that essentially being left on the table uh, you could argue because of um, uh, an operational um, you know, uh, operational tempo that's not where it needs to be. So I, I think that I think that that is um, those are the facts and those are the numbers. And so yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, as we've said in our research notes. I think way all the way back in December and January that uh, in fact we published a top ten list the first working day of this, January. And one of the top ten things that we wrote at that time was if Norfolk doesn't improve their operating performance in any meaningful way this year, um, there's going to be pressure. 
And, and so I am not at all, we're not all surprised because when you look at the fourth quarter, the company did pu uh, publish a three-year target of improving their operating ratio by 100 to 150 basis points or one to one and a half percent every year. Um, the problem is, is that every railroad probably right. has that target as well. And so they're not, the, the, that goal is not actually lowering the gap. So I, I think, um, you know, I, I know the Norfolk management team incredibly well. I think they're really, really trying to do the right thing. And I believe with every bone in my body that they responded to the East Palestine thing perfectly. You looked at the NTSB report. I think it was perfect. What they did was really, really good in terms of uh, dealing with that, with that disaster that could have happened to, to any railroad. I mean, people forget, you know, the positive chain control PTC regulation came 14 days after a Union Pacific uh, derailment. You know, and the fact that now we are over a year or about a year removed from that, and there's really been no real legislation, you know, the facts matter in this case. And I think Norfolk Southern handled themselves extremely well. And, 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 and I think the regulatory reports also say that. But yeah, I mean, I, I would say that there is a lot more needed to fix the um, operating tempo of the business. And, and, you know, that, that's really the, the, the reason we're seeing these headlines hit the tape, essentially. Right. And in your opinion, is that because they haven't, like, leaned into PSR? They've kind of, like, you know, they, they implement some PSR within, and sorry, PSR is Precision Scheduling Railroading. Um, you know, it's, it's an operating um, uh, philosophy that's done on most of the rails now. And for those out there, it's kind of like Six Sigma for the railroads. It's just really looking at costs and asset utilization and, and trying to maximize, um, you know, utilization of, of those assets. So sorry about that. So let's digress. Um, so do you think it's it's because they haven't, you know, fully leaned into to PSR? Well, PSR, you know, is not a thing that you are, it's really a thing that you do. Like I like to say, it's not a noun, it's a verb. You know, you, you, are, you, are, you are doing it every day, therefore you are. When you stop doing it every day, you stop becoming that. So PSR to your, I think you, you explained it beautifully, Lee, at the end of the day, it's a very fancy term or kind of a quote unquote sophisticated term for just managing an asset intensive business the way it's supposed to manage, be managed which is to optimize the efficiency of the assets that you employ. And so when you think about a railroad, it's, it's a fight every day. You know, it's an outdoor sport. So every railroad has a morning call, whatever, 7, 7.30 in the morning, and every district or every region has to row in the same direction. If that, if that train doesn't leave Chicago on time, it doesn't get to Atlanta on time. If it doesn't leave Atlanta, it doesn't get to New York on time. And so every part of that network has to operate appropriately and on time for there not to be problems down the line, this butterfly effect that we call it. And so a, a well-run PSR rail is not set it and forget it. It is every single day doing PSR, and then you become a PSR rail. That's what we've seen at Union Pacific under Jim Venna and, and all the rest of the operating team there. Um, what, what, what can happen in a short period of time if, if the entire organization is held accountable to the trip plan? And so for me, I think where, where Norfolk, I mean, failing is too harsh of a word, but where I think Norfolk needs improvement is holding every part of the trip plan accountable. And that, and, and that history has shown is not a lot of people can do. I think, you know, there's a few people uh, that come from that Hunter Harrison school of thought that, that, that effectively do that. And I think that's why you've seen, you know, this rush to 
uh, intervention, if I could put it that way, external intervention in the company, because there is a view that like not a lot of people can do this. It's a hard thing to do. If it was easy, everybody would do it. And, and, and I think right. PSR is a verb. It's not a noun. It's the best way I can frame it. Okay. And, and, and for those out there, Hunter Harrison, he's kind of considered the, uh, the godfather of PSR. He started in Illinois Central, moved just to Canadian National. And a lot of the railroads today, um, the people that are running the operations or even the C-suite or the, the CEO uh, are disciples of, of Hunter Harrison. So he's had a, a, a dramatic impact uh, on the industry. You know, you, 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 you mentioned... Um, you know, we, we were talking about railroads. So is there a railroad that, you know, you, you like over the others from a stock perspective? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, and so um, you know, we, um, in, in January of last year, not to just give out people a little bit of context, in January of last year, we downgraded Union Pacific because of a lot of the operational challenges that we just saw were mis-execution. Um, and then we upgraded it around $213 when Jim Benna, you know, was basically going to come in and, and, and fix the business. And, and obviously Union Pacific has gone from 213 all the way to $240 or even over $240. And so for us, like Union Pacific, for really the latter half of last year was the number one railroad that we liked because of this opportunity to improve the car velocity and the operating metrics will ultimately lead to better asset turns, which ultimately led to more volume and better profits. And so that has kind of played out now. I think Union Pacific still has a very, very um, uh, favorable opportunity ahead of it. And we still have a buy rating on the stock. But we actually wrote a note um, a little over a week ago uh, making Norfolk Southern our, 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 our top pick. And we actually published a note saying why Norfolk Southern is our favorite rail now. And that happened before all the activism stuff came out. And the reason we did that is because we thought that it was the, the fourth quarter results and the conference call were, um, were very difficult. And it became very clear that there was a, a, an acceleration needed uh, by this management team to address some of the concerns that the market legitimately had. And so in our opinion, and we wrote about this when we, when we made Norfolk our top flick, we thought that it would be inevitable to see improvement in Norfolk Southern. And we strongly believe that, and we hope that it's the existing management team that makes that change. Uh, but it's going to happen one way or the another. And what we said in our note, actually, this is a quote, is that no railroad has been allowed to underperform by this much for this long without there, there being some change, um, change whether internally generated in terms of improvement or external change. And then, of course, a couple of days later, you know, the, the, the activism thing came out and, and all that stuff. But this has been something we've been talking about for, you know, like I said, we go back to all the way to January, early January, where we talked about the need for Norfolk to improve. Otherwise, there would be pressure. So I, I, I think that um, Norfolk Southern has become our favorite because we think structurally there's nothing really impeding that business from improving margins by at least 500 basis points and, and even actually even more. And so we think that will happen over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. And so, um, yeah, I would say Norfolk has become our favorite. Okay. And just, um, you know, just uh, as an FYI out there, Union Pacific and Knight Swift, uh, they both made uh, Business Week's uh, list of 50 companies to watch uh, in 2024 uh, that was uh, published earlier, earlier this year. Um, you know, so I just want to like uh, switch gears a little bit because I know you kind of like earned your transportation chops. I, I believe you did in the, the marine shipping space. Um, you know, it, obviously that's been a hot topic uh, as of 
as of late, given what's going on in, in, in the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Kind of what are your thoughts? Uh, I know we all have our crystal balls. Mine tend to, mine's pretty cracked and, and, and cloudy. <laughs> but, you know, what, what are you thinking about when you're looking at marine shipping, the impact from the crisis in the Red Sea on rates and, and what that means for the companies that you cover? Okay. So, yeah, you're right. I started out as a maritime shipping analyst. It's my first love. It's my passion. It's something I think about all the time. Um, and, and, and so, yes, I mean, when you think about the maritime shipping space, um, there's many different verticals, right? There's dry bulk commodities, iron ore, coal, there's, you know, tankers, you're doing refined oil, you know, jet fuel, diesel, gasoline, crude oil. And then what you asked about, which is container ships. <laughs> and so those are, those are, you know, obviously very um, important for uh, truckers and railroads because the stuff that comes on a big container ship to the port of Los Angeles or the port of Long Beach or New York or, or Newark or whatever, um, you know, has to be um, moved inland um, via drayage or trucking or rail. And so, 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 so that has knock-on implications. So one of the most important things we look at is port imports. In fact, we even track, you know, the number of ships that are leaving China every day and where they're going as a leading indicator, hopefully, for uh, what the opportunity is for railroads and trucking companies to move inland. And so we get it, we get it right most of the time, but sometimes we, we get it wrong because uh, the data is not perfect. Um, but I would say that the Red Sea stuff hasn't really concerned me as it relates to an opportunity for the freight companies. And so, so and, and, and I've tried not to be complacent about this, but keep in mind the Suez Canal connects, you know, Asia to Europe. Um, and, and, and it's not really a, a huge route of traffic for things that are coming to the West Coast uh, of the U.S., where the majority of, of Asian shipments come in. And, and so um, that hasn't really now, – now what's been really interesting is that the, the Panama Canal has restricted massively transit times every day. I think it's like almost half, basically, of what they typically do or allow in terms of daily ship transits. And so if you want to get to the United States now – uh, more and more, the north, the, the west coast of the of the country, is is the easier route, <laughs> and that is a really good thing for for freight because those are long length of hauls. You know what's interesting is more than sixty percent of the population lives east of the Mississippi River, but yet fifty percent or fifty five percent of what we import come on the west. So it's got to move. That's why mm -hmm. Chicago and Atlanta and St. Louis are all important east west hubs it's because a lot of that stuff that comes in the west coast has to make its way to the east east coast um so i think that's positive uh but we forget you know we're still in a very weak demand environment generally speaking so we have seen west coast share um as a percentage of imports move up dramatically the biggest increase really came in the middle of last year when the, the West Coast finally signed their labor deal. And now keep in mind, the East Coast labor, you know, the, the, the union labor uh, dock workers in the East Coast, there's some rumblings there too. So I think that right. the West Coast of the United States is going to be a net beneficiary. Um, and you hate to see a, talking about who benefits from this disaster, this geopolitical disaster that's happening in the Red Sea. But the bottom line is, is that we think more goods will come onto the West Coast of the United States. We're seeing that in the numbers. Uh, we're not seeing it, you know, massive improvements, but we're seeing a little bit of improvements. And that creates opportunities for railroads and truckers, you know, in terms of long haul moves from the West Coast to the middle of the country. All right. And, um, and, and some of those 
companies that will benefit are some of the names that you, you mentioned earlier, like Union Pacific and J.B. Hunt? Well, those those are the two d direct beneficiaries, right? So so at the end of the day, and BNSF, which is obviously right. not public, uh, but 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 yes, but but let's keep in mind, you know, um, fifty percent of what CSX and Norfolk move are is interchanged, and so uh, this mm -hmm. idea that they wouldn't they they are pretty direct beneficiaries, but not not immediate beneficiaries, but yes, J.B. Hunt and, and Union Pacific, to your point. And then, you know, also what's happening in Mexico, what's happening in, if you look at like, you know, investments in um, U.S. manufacturing capacity over the last, you know, six months or, or 12 months, it's literally up and to the right. And so there is this opportunity, I think, from a nearshoring perspective to move more uh, for our transportation networks that I think is positive too, that's outside of the whole import complex. Right. Gotcha. Well, that's great. And, uh, you know, I think we're, we're coming up on, on the end of our time right now. So you know, I'd love to check in with you later on this year to see, uh, you know, how your picks are, are going uh, later on in uh, 2024. Yep, Lee, always great. And listen, I've, I've, I've heard all your podcasts, and so I'm a fan. And so it's an honor for me to, to be part of it. So thank you again for the invitation. Thanks. Thanks, Emmett. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in. And if you liked an episode, please subscribe and leave a review. We've lined up a, a number of great guests for the podcast. So check back to hear conversations with C-suite executives, shippers, regulators, and decision makers within the freight transportation markets. Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes, please hit me up on the terminal or on Twitter at Logistics Lee. Thanks, everyone, and be safe out there. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.